O God, I pray that as we encounter you in your word this morning, that our response would be like the 24 elders around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5, and that we would have nothing else we could do but to fall down and worship you. May you be magnified in the heart of every single person here. May we stand in awe of you as we gaze upon your beauty and inquire in your temple this morning. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O God, do I seek. We're seeking you this morning, Lord. We want to know you. I pray that you would change us into your likeness, O God, that you would build your people up, make us more like Christ. God, that's why we're here. We want to know you. I pray that for those who are here who don't know you, who don't have saving faith, who are not in awe of you, who are not worshiping you and serving you with their lives, that today would be the day of salvation, that today they would encounter you in all of your glory and splendor and mercy, and that they would turn away from their sin and see that you are so much better than anything this world has to offer, and that they would worship you as you ought to be worshiped. I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, please speak through your word. Help me in my weakness this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so we're, we're in a series on the book of Revelation. And uh, the last seven weeks, we've been looking at the seven letters to the churches in Asia in chapters 2 and 3, and so we're going to be shifting gears a bit today. Uh, It'll be helpful, I think, for us to zoom back out and to remember the big picture of Revelation. So if you'll recall from the first couple of weeks, we, we said that the main point of, of the uh, series or the main idea of the book is that although it may appear that evil is triumphing, God is working out his purposes to bring about the ultimate defeat of evil and the final reward of the saints. That's the big picture message of the book of Revelation to God's people. So the book of Revelation was written to help the church persevere and to endure through the trials that Jesus told us we will walk through as his followers. And so in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus told the Apostle John, he said, Write what you see and send it to the seven churches in Asia. And then in verse 19 of chapter 1, a few verses later, he says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. And so chapters 2 and 3 what that we've been looking at the past seven weeks, those are the things that are. Okay, Chapters 2 and 3 were letters to the seven churches in Asia that addressed their present situation on the ground. It was, they, they addressed, uh, they were to specific churches at a specific time in history, although they are still applicable to the church at large across history, uh, the principles that we find in them. And so chapter 4 represents a shift or, or a hinge, if you will, in the book of Revelation. First, the, the scene shifts. If you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 1 there, John says, And behold, a door standing open in heaven. So a window into heaven, as it were, is opened. And now we're, we're seeing things 
what's taking place in heaven as the last days begin to unfold. Not only does the scene shift, but the focus shifts from the things that are to the things that will take place. Verse 2, the angel says to John, he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Do you notice that? So chapters 2 and 3 are addressing the present situation on the ground for those seven churches. In chapter 4, we have a, we have a, a shift here where now the angel tells John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So chapters 4 and 5 are a glimpse into what is happening in heaven as the last days begin to unfold. And I'll remind you again from the first couple weeks that we are in the last days right now, okay? We're living in the midst of the last days. The last days were inaugurated when Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead. That began, that set off the last days and they're unfolding before us now. And so some of the, it's true that some of what we see in Revelation points to future events, but much of it depicts events that are unfolding right now. And as we've already observed throughout this series, the last days are times of difficulty. Uh, There are trials and tribulations that the church, God's people, will walk through. There's a spiritual war taking place. The forces of evil have launched an all-out assault against the church, against God's people. While the church can expect times of difficulty... The good news this morning, and this is the main point of of this message this morning, the good news is that the church can be confident knowing that God will soon be worshipped on earth as He is right now in heaven. The church can be confident knowing that God will soon be worshipped on earth as He is right now in heaven. This morning I want us to look at four truths from Revelation chapter 4 and 5 to give us confidence that this is indeed the case. That first truth is that God reigns sovereignly in heaven over the turmoil on earth. I just love this picture of chapter 4. Because as all of this craziness is unfolding throughout the book of Revelation, all the craziness that you see happening in chapters 2 and 3 in the seven churches, the picture we get in chapter 4 is that God is completely undisturbed. He is absolutely reigning sovereignly over all of human history. And everything, in, in, in every creature in heaven worships Him without question. While things may appear chaotic on earth, there is one throne in heaven and God is seated on it. Indicating His design, His divine sovereignty over all things throughout history. God is not wringing His hands in heaven worried about what to do about all the things that are happening on earth worried about the persecution that the church is experiencing or about the false teaching that's running rampant. Oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? No. God is supreme. He's, He's reigning in perfect peace in all of His glorious splendor and might. It's just... Let's just walk through a couple of the things we see here about God. Verse 3 highlights His majesty. He's majestic. The jasper and the carnelian those precious stones, along with the rainbow that's like an emerald, represent God's majesty. His beauty and His worth are unparalleled. There is nothing greater than Him, so nothing and no one else is worthy of our worship. 
His beauty and worth are so great that John cannot even find the words to describe him fully. He just, he just describes the appearance of marvelous colors and light. In verse 5, highlights God's holiness. John says, From his throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And this, this harkens back to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 where God appeared to Moses and to Israel and they were told not even to come close to the mountain lest they perish, lest they die because God is holy. And it, it also highlights His power. God's power and strength are unmatched, which gives great encouragement to God's people as they are persecuted in weakness by much stronger foes. Our God is stronger than any foe that could come against us. And then in, in verse 6, we see God's sovereignty. It says that before His throne, there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This, this is like a picture of serenity, of perfect peace. And in Scripture, throughout Scripture, a, the churning sea depicts the chaotic forces of evil. But the sea of glass before God's throne demonstrates that he has the authority to subdue evil. Everything is subdued before him. The chaotic sea, the churning sea of evil is subdued before God's sovereign hand. So while chaos may be erupting on earth, God is not panicked in heaven. And in heaven, he is unquestionably worshipped by every living thing. Day and night, there never ceases to be heard in heaven the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But we don't have time to get into the details of the four creatures um, that we see here, but they, they resemble angelic beings of worship. And God is also worshipped by 24 elders, which probably represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles who together represent God's people throughout all history, the church. What you have a picture of with the 24 elders, with the 24 thrones around the throne of God is, is all of God's people worshiping Him as He ought to be worshiped. Uh, and this is instructive, I think, for the church today. Because when we gather weekly to worship together, we are modeling our worship after what we see in heaven here in Revelation chapter 4. The focus of our worship ought to be God. The songs in Revelation 4 are all about Him and who He is. The one who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders bow before Him in reverent submission, acknowledging that He created all things and by His will, they existed and were created. What we need when we gather together to worship is not a pick-me-up or a message to help us feel good about ourselves. We need to fix our eyes on the living God who reigns sovereignly over all things. That's what every living thing in heaven is doing. And that's what we're to do when we gather together to worship here on earth. In doing this we help point one another to the reality that God reigns in heaven and that He is worthy of our worship no matter what's happening around us, no matter how chaotic our life may feel. God reigns supreme in heaven. We need to be reminded of that. We help point one another to that when we gather for worship. And we need this reminder because 
like Scripture says, as Christians, we are strangers and aliens. This, this present world is not our home. G.K. Beale is a, a scholar and a theologian, and he writes this. He says that chapter 4 is a reminder that regardless of how rampantly evil seems to run and cause God's people to suffer, they can know that His hand superintends everything for their good and His glory. We need to be reminded that God reigns in heaven now and that soon His kingdom will be done and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what a privilege corporate worship is. It's, it's not a spectator sport. It's something that we all come together and participate in together. That's why it's important to come with your heart prepared to worship. There's several ways you can do this moving forward. You can, I would encourage you to, to read the passage ahead of time and pray through it. That's one of the reasons we walk sequentially through books of the Bible so that you'll know. Like, so let me encourage you, next week we're going to be teaching out of Revelation chapter 6 and 7. So read it this week and pray through it and come with your hearts prepared. Pray before you come. Ask the Lord to help you prepare your heart to worship Him. Uh, and then uh, arrive early. Give yourself time to prepare your heart. You know, don't, don't be you know, rushing in and rushing out. Take, uh, arrive early and, and give yourself time to prepare to come into the presence of the Lord. And then uh, lastly, I would say take time in the afternoon to be still before God and to process and meditate on all that you've heard, on everything that we have sung, on the word that you've heard preached from the scriptures. You see, if we, if we hurry in and we hurry out of corporate worship, we run the risk of getting to a place where we're just going through the motions. We need to slow down and be still long enough to fix the gaze of our heart upon God, reigning sovereignly upon His throne. And by the way, this also goes for private devotions throughout the week in the morning. Don't, don't rush in and rush out of them. I know you've got a lot to do, but this is worth setting aside time for. It's worth sacrificing something else for. So just ask yourself, well, what needs to change in my calendar? What needs to change in my schedule? Like, this is the most important thing you could possibly do. It's, it's as we fix our gaze upon Him that we have the strength to endure everything else that we're going to face throughout the week. It's, that's the only way you're going to be able to resist temptation. It's the only way you're going to have hope in times of trials. This is for your good. It's not to like earn your way into God's good graces. No, we're saved by grace through faith. This is, this is for your own good. It's to help sustain you. God wants to meet you throughout the week and together. So let's not rush in and out of His presence. Now, Revelation chapter 4 really is a picture of the way things ought to be. God being unquestionably worshipped by every living creature. But obviously, when we look around us right now in the world, things are not as they should be, are they? While God reigns in heaven, people rebel against Him on earth. Evil forces combine to oppose the church and the gospel. So if it seems like evil is triumphing right now, how can we be assured that God's Redemptive purposes for us will be carried out. How can we be sure that His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, chapter 5 gives us the answer. 
in, in chapter 5, verse 1, we see that there's a scroll in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And that scroll is God's plan of judgment and redemption that has been sealed or kept secret from before the, the foundation of the earth. The scroll is, is God's will for all of creation. And God's will is that he would be worshipped and praised on earth as he is in heaven. In heaven, God is worshipped as he ought to be. Perfect peace reigns. There's no death or, or sin or sickness or evil. Everything is right. The Old Testament calls it shalom. It's this concept of things as they ought to be. Perfect peace. And Jesus taught us to pray for this to become a reality on earth in the Lord's Prayer. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's happening in heaven? God unquestionably worshipped by every living creature. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying for that to happen here. We're praying for the unsealing of the scroll. We're praying for light to break through the darkness, for evil and God's enemies to be vanquished, and for God to restore everything that sin has destroyed. We're praying for the new heavens and the new earth and the peaceful, eternal reign of Christ Jesus. And initially... No one was found worthy to open the scroll, and so John began to weep. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no man or woman worthy to open the scroll. No man or woman has the authority or the worthiness to carry out God's divine judgment and restoration. This is tragic. It's why John weeps. Because it appears in this moment that God's glorious plan will not be carried out. That evil will continue to run rampant throughout the earth. That God's saints will not ever get justice. And so John weeps. But then in verse 5, one of the elders says, weep no more. The good news is that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and is alive forevermore, is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. The second Point, the second truth this morning I want to draw your attention to is that the Lamb has the authority to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can make that happen. But what is really surprising in which is the way in which Jesus has conquered. The way in which He does that. In verse 5, He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. Those are both messianic titles pointing to Jesus' identity as the promised Messiah. But he did not come to conquer in the way that the Jewish people expected the Messiah to come and conquer. Surprisingly, the lion of the tribe of Judah conquered by being slain as the lamb. And verse 9 implies that it is through his death that Jesus has received authority to open the seals. It says, you are worthy for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people. This does not mean that Jesus did not hold authority beforehand. Jesus has always been God. God is triune. He is one God and three persons. And each person of the Trinity has a role in God's redemptive plan of salvation. But for God's plan to be accomplished, the role of Messiah had to be fulfilled. And God's will for the Messiah 
was to crush him, Isaiah 53 says. It was to lay upon him all of our iniquity. So Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man. He was perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, but he came to die. The lion of the tribe of Judah allowed himself to be led to the slaughter as the sacrificial lamb. Jesus had to go to the cross because there was no other way to atone for the sins of God's people. And God's will is that he would be worshipped unquestionably by all of his people throughout all of eternity, which means that he had to purchase us out of enslavement to sin and to death. And the only thing that could pay that infinite debt was the precious blood of Christ because the debt that we owed could never have been repaid. We've sinned against an infinitely holy God, which means there is an infinite debt that we owe. No amount of good works could ever make up for our sin. There is nothing you could do that could ever earn your way into heaven. One must purchase us. One must purchase us out of slavery. Christ is the one who has done this by his blood. And and Jesus died. He was laid in a tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead, vindicating himself, proving that he is the Son of God, and now he lives forevermore, and he is exalted. He reigns in heaven. Because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, he is now exalted above everything, Philippians 2 tells us. The lamb who was slain and is alive forevermore has seven horns, symbolizing his absolute power, and seven eyes, symbolizing his perfect knowledge to judge righteously. The path to God's righteous judgment and to his restoration of creation goes through the cross. Do you see that? Jesus is exalted because he was humbled on the cross. The path to the new heavens and the new earth goes through the cross. The way for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven goes through the cross. It was necessary and Jesus knew it was necessary. When Peter tried to convince him otherwise, he said, Lord, it shall not be so for you. What did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And do you remember what he said next? Matthew 16, 24, he says, if if any one of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If we want to reign with Christ, we too must follow the way of the cross. Jesus conquered through weakness, and as his followers, so do we. Taking up your cross means eschewing the pursuit of worldly power and comfort and instead trusting completely in God's power and promises. The the way to conquer is by patiently enduring evil like Jesus, loving our enemies like Jesus, continuing to bear witness to the truth like Jesus. In other words, it's trusting Jesus by obeying his commands no matter the cost. That is what saving faith looks like. It's not always easy to follow Jesus. But as Romans 8, 17 promises, that 
if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. The third truth I want to draw your attention to is that it's found there in verse 9 and 10. See, Jesus' death not only led to His exaltation, it accomplished salvation for a particular people. In verse 9 and 10, the living creatures and the elders sing a new song to the Lamb. They sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the third truth is that the Lamb has ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. In conquering through his death, Christ purchased a particular people by his blood from among every people group on the earth. Apart from Christ, every person is a slave to sin. As I said earlier, we could never purchase our own freedom. We owe an infinite debt. Only Jesus could pay that debt. And so if you are a Christian, that means that your debt has been paid. His blood is the ransom payment that has freed you. That's what it means when it says, by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Believers, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus' blood does not merely secure the possibility that you could be saved. Jesus' blood has paid for all of your sin. It's already paid for. You are saved. It doesn't just make it possible and then you have to finish the deal by having enough faith. No, you were ransomed. Past tense. It's done. It's over. You are secure and you are fixed in Him and He will hold you fast to the end. That is good news. Jesus died to save a particular people from among all nations. And if you are a Christian, you are one of those people. That ought to cause us to wonder and to be amazed. That means that before the foundation of the earth, He chose you, as Ephesians 1.4 says, to be holy and blameless before Him, even though you were a sinner and deserved death. He has done this, why? To display the riches of His grace toward us for all of eternity. Because He delights in lavishing His love on His people so that we can enjoy and worship Him forever and ever. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It is completely secured by the shed blood of Christ, which has paid for all of our sin. It's right here in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Your ransom has been paid in full. Believe it. Don't let Satan lie to you and tell you that it hasn't been, that you need to make up for it, that you might not actually be saved. Don't listen to his lies. If you have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are saved. Your debt is paid. And I also want to address non-Christians in the room. Perhaps you're, you're here and you're not a believer or you're not sure if you are. I just want you to, to ask yourself a few questions. Do you have assurance like this about your eternal destiny? Do you know for certain that your sins have been paid for? Do you know for certain that you belong to God? You can have that assurance today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. 
humble yourself and call out to Jesus and he will save you. The way that this blood of Jesus is applied to us is by faith. If we call out to him in faith, repenting of our sin, turning from it, and trusting in Christ alone, the blood of Jesus will be applied to you too. And all of your sin debt will be paid off in full. Your past, present, present, and future sin. What an invitation. What an invitation. The only thing that would keep us from a beautiful gift like that is pride. That's the only thing that will keep that. Don't let your pride keep you from that. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You must simply repent and believe, which means turning from a life of sin, taking up your cross, and deciding to follow Jesus. And yes, it's costly. It is. It's costly. And there is suffering on the road ahead. But oh, how wonderful are the riches that are in Christ Jesus. It's more than worth it. More than worth it. We would love to help you do this. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Pastor Thomas, Chad, Doug, one of us after the service. We'd love to help you learn how to begin following Jesus. Church, I also want to point out here a very important word in verse 9. It says that by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe. According to peoplegroups.org, there are currently 3,179 unreached, unengaged people groups around the world, representing about 280 million people. Which means that among those 3,179 groups, there are no known believers or churches, and currently no one laboring to bring the gospel to these people right now. And they are unreached and unengaged primarily because they are in hard-to-access, dangerous places. God's Word, we just read this morning, God's Word says that someone from every one of those 3,179 groups has been ransomed and will dwell with Him forever in the kingdom of God. They will be around the throne with us upon Christ's return. So how will that come about? In his wisdom, God invites us into the process. Oops. In his wisdom, God invites us into the process. It's through the proclamation of the gospel by the church that God saves. Romans 10, 13 to 15 says... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? International missions isn't our program. It is God's plan. We don't do this because it's our shtick. We do it because God's word commands us to and because God has ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and nation and they need to hear the gospel. This is, that's just what we do. It's just, it's, if we're not doing this, then why are we here is what I would ask. We send and support missionaries to the nations because God is worthy of the worship of every living creature. And he accomplishes this through his church. And he invites us into the process. It's what he's already doing, and we, we get to participate. It's not something that we make happen. God makes it happen. Like, I was thinking the other day, uh, my oldest son Joshua likes to help me. Uh, 
you know, make dinner. And so I'll have him help me make dinner. And I was making something and there was like a pot of hot oil and I had to pour some onions in there. And so he wants to do it. And so I'm pouring the onions and he's touching the bowl. And so he's helping me. And, you know, in his mind, he's just geeked out because I got to help dad make dinner. In reality, he didn't really help me at all. Uh, I was the one doing it, but he got to participate in it and it was really fun for him. And that's a bit like what, you know, we're not, when we try to help God, right? Like God's the one that's doing all the work and he's letting us participate, right? God is the one who's saving people. God's the one who plants churches. God's the one who who opens the eyes of the blind, and we get the privilege of participating with him. So what are some ways we do that? Well, one is prayer. Probably the most important one is through prayer. Jesus said in Luke 10, 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? What should we do? Because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, what should we do? Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. That is God inviting us into this task of going to the nations. And you may ask, well, does this really make a difference? Well, Paul thought so. He wrote wrote to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 4.3, he said, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Yes, prayer makes a difference. Yes, prayer matters. Because in his sovereignty, God has willed that that is the way that he will move through his people when we call out to him. So pray for missionaries and pray for the gospel to be made known amongst unreached people groups. Get the Joshua Project app. It's an easy app where you can, uh, each day it'll give you a specific people group to pray for. We need to be praying regularly for the spread of Christ's fame among the nations. Giving is another way that we help uh, further the spread of the gospel amongst all peoples. As a church, uh, we want to model that as a whole. So we give um, through our church budget to the cooperative program, which supports the International Mission Board uh, that sends missionaries out all over the world, as well as the North American Mission Board, which plants churches here in North America. And we also support two uh, international missionary couples. Uh, We support Logan and Carla Douglas, who are laboring in Iceland, Uh, Over 99% of the population in Iceland is uh, not believers. It's a very, very lost uh, nation, and they are doing incredible work there. And then we support Logan and Emily, who are uh, missionaries in Southeast Asia, uh, currently laboring to reach one of those 3,179 unreached, unengaged peoples. Um, And so we give financially uh, to them to help keep those missionaries on the ground. And in a moment, we're going to be taking up our annual missions offering. Um, And so that offering is going to go, 50% will support Logan and Carla Douglas in Iceland. And then the other 50% is going to go to GSI, Global Serve International, which is the missions agency that that sends out uh, Logan and Emily in Southeast Asia. Uh, And they primarily focus on sending missionaries to closed countries to reach unreached language groups. So they're laser-focused on reaching the 3,179 peoples that have never had anyone uh, proclaim the name of Christ among them before. And so incredible ministries, and we want to give sacrificially uh, to them, so we're going to invite you into that in a moment. Uh, And then, so pray, give, and then going. Um, This is another way that as a church, we can labor to see Christ proclaimed among all nations. 
there's short-term trips and then there's long-term trips. And we actually have a short-term trip coming up to Iceland, uh, April 1st through the 7th, to work with Logan and Carla there on the ground. Um, and it's an incredible opportunity to go support them, encourage them, and share the gospel with people who've literally never heard it. Uh, Jen and I went in 2019, and I can promise you, most of the people you're going to encounter there have never actually had anybody share the gospel with them before, because there are, I mean, there's just a handful of churches that preach the gospel in the entire country. Um, and so most people have never heard the gospel, so it's just, and most people speak English, so as far as international mission trips go, man, it's what an opportunity to go. And you get to like actually share the gospel with people who've never heard it. So cool. So, man, I would encourage you like to pray about being involved in that. Uh, and if you're interested, come and talk to me or one of the elders afterwards, and we can, um, we can help you, you know, figure out how to get signed up, okay? Uh, and then also, um, there's short-term trips, but I also believe that God is calling some of you to give your life to the nations, and as a church, it's our desire to send people to go long-term as missionaries to the nations. And we've got two of our members committed already to go to the nations. We're going to be sending one of them uh, next year to missionary training school uh, in Mexico City, and so she will be going out, and we want, Lord willing, to raise up many, many more. The question is not, why should I go to the nations? It's, why shouldn't I go? That's what every one of us should be asking. I need to regularly ask that question. Thomas needs to regularly ask it. Doug, Chad, every one of us in this room needs to regularly and sincerely spend some time in prayer and go, God, are you calling me to go? Because if you are, I am willing. I'm, I, it's, maybe you can even be honest with the Lord. Lord, the thought terrifies me, and I don't feel like I'm cut out for it. But if you call me to go, I'll go anywhere you call me to go. I'll do anything you ask me to do. I'll give up anything you called me, me to give up because I know that your plans for me are good. Amen. And I know that your fame among the, name, uh, among the nations is worth it. It's worth laying down my entire life for. Not all of us are called to go, but some of us are, and some of you are. And we're all called to participate. We're either a goer or a sender. That's the bottom line. So my challenge to you is, are you participating? And if not, how can you start this week? Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. And we do all of this. We do all of this because, because the Lamb is worthy of praise along with the Father. Notice in verse 11 that Jesus the Lamb is worshipped in the same manner as God was in chapter 4. Do you see that? In verse 12, excuse me, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's like the song that was sung to the one who was seated on the throne in chapter 4. You see, Jesus was not merely a great man or a great teacher. His teachings are not recorded in Scripture as great suggestions for how to have a better life. Jesus is God. At Christmas time, we pause to marvel that He became flesh and dwelt among us and then died to ransom sinners. But as we've clearly seen, the Lamb is not dead anymore. He is alive and He is worshipped as God in heaven. And upon His return, He will be worshipped by every living thing on earth. Verse 13 is actually a glimpse into the future. Look at it. It says, John writes, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth 
and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is things as they ought to be. This is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, it will come to pass. The sun, the radiance of the glory of God, the visible image of the invisible God, will be worshipped by everyone along with the Father and the Spirit. On the day Jesus returns, the only thing anyone will be able to do is fall down and worship Him. His enemies will have no excuses. Every mouth will be stopped. Everyone on that day will know and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we, as His people, will stand amazed and we will delight in His beauty and bask in His everlasting love toward us that He delights to pour out for all of eternity. And because this is just, man, we could spend so much time in these two chapters. We could spend so much time. Because, think about this, because God is triune, one God and three persons, the Father delights in sharing His glory with the Son. Each member of the Trinity delights in magnifying the other. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified because the Son is the image of God. Colossians 1.19 says, In Him, in the Son, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is unspeakably wonderful and glorious. If you are not living for Him now, I urge you to begin doing so today. God has made Himself known in Christ. He is worthy of your worship, and He will get it. And like I tell my kids sometimes, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. So don't be stubborn and refuse to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. And church, this scene here ought to give us great confidence. We can be confident knowing that God will soon be worshipped on earth as He is right now in heaven. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. One day soon, this scene will unfold before us And all of our toil will give way to everlasting enjoyment. So let's press on, church. Let's press forward in knowing Jesus and making Him known with joy this Christmas season.